we have been comparing, well, let's start from the beginning. The first question we asked yesterday, the first session was, is there a God in existence? How will I know? And we realized that to the question, is there a God in existence? There can be only two answers. There is, there is not. And we developed four columns of evidence. Columns for the first option, which says there is no God in existence. And in the same line, a second column against the other side, which says there is a God in existence. And then we went to the other side, the option which said there is a God in existence. What are the arguments for it? And what are the arguments against the other option which said there is no God in existence? When you have four lines and four columns of evidences, you just place them before you and you will see how the pendulum shifts very decisively and very clearly to the side that there is something supernatural. Everything is just not what we see. And beyond that, there is a supernatural dimension of living. And if there is a supernatural dimension, then there is the question whether it is only a power or whether it is a being, personality. The ordinary simple reasoning is that if I have a personality and if that power created me, then the power has to have a personality himself. Otherwise, I wouldn't have a personality. And therefore, the being that is there is a thinking, feeling, acting, speaking being, because that's what I do. When we settled that, then we had to look for the name. Is there an identity to this God? First, what is truth? Is all truth only relative? Are all statements only relatively true? It's called relativism. And when we looked at it carefully, relativism does not stand a simple, logical examination. It is false. There are some things known as absolute truths in our existence. You cannot have everything relative. For if you do, you will not be able to live. Everything will be irrational then. The next question is religious relativism, which is pluralism which says that don't bother about the number of religions out there. All of them are just different paths to the same common goal. We looked at the religious writings of five of these religions, which we are looking at now, and none of those religious writings ever accept this concept that there is a way and there's an equal alternative on the other side. Every religion claimed to be the only way. So if there are four or five wanting to be the champion, what are the options? Logical deduction, a final deduction of when there are more than one, is that there is only one that is telling the truth of being the only way. So if that's the case, which is that? And uh, I am describing really my personal search into this, which took me uh, over 20 years. At the end of which I put all these things together and that's what we have here as a seminar. Then I chose five great world religions, Hinduism, Islam, Buddhism, Judaism, and Christianity. And tried to figure out how we would be able to weigh them out. There is no reference point, so how do you do it? How do you compare apples and oranges? That was the big question. The fact is you cannot. Just describing the different features is not comparison. We call it comparative religion classes, but all they do is describe the features. Nobody has the guts to say this is better than that. But if you really are looking for something, you've got to somehow find out whether one is better than the other. Now you cannot do that by just describing the different features. But there could be a possible way. 
if we went to some other features that were not really inside there inherently, for example, suppose you were hungry and you were given the choice between an apple and an orange. You love oranges, but this apple was a nice, shiny, red, juicy, sweet fruit on the table and the orange was picked two weeks ago and by the time it reached the table it has all black blotches on it and shriveled and little holes there and little wiggly creatures poking their heads out of the holes. Now which will you choose? You choose the apple because you're hungry and you want to eat. Did you choose between the apple and the orange? Yes and no. Because there were two you did choose but you did not choose between the features of an apple and the features of an orange. You chose between rottenness and freshness. But it was a valid choice. Valid choice. And so similarly, when you deal with these different religions, you cannot go to their doctrines to compare the doctrines. You have to go to features that are what I call para-religious features. They are not religious in themselves. They are facts that anybody else can look into. You don't have to be a, an adherent to the religion to be able to decipher those facts. You must go to those kind of questions and ask simple, straightforward questions. Now, in my search I found out that it's not as important to look for answers as it is to look for the right question. You've done these mazes, you know, maze puzzles. You take your pencil and go boom against a wall there and then come back and then go to another side and boom against another wall and bring your pencil back and then finally go through. That's how it was with me. Until I got the correct questions and I guess for you it's kind of easier because all I'm going to show you are the questions that pushed me through. It took me a long time to bang my head against this wall and that wall and then finally come to this and make a reasonable case. You cannot be wedded to a cause of which you have serious questions in your mind. The heart can never be happy and at peace while the mind has serious questions. That's the problem. It is not that we don't have enough of, of commitment. It is not that we don't have enough of experience. We cannot make a decision to follow unto death until we have a reason in your brain, not in your heart. You get it? There are many people who say, I got a good experience. Look, let me tell you, there are good experiences in the Buddhists too. And some of those experiences might be better than yours. So now what? You must have a basis to believe. And that is my cry. I asked God, I said, give me a reason to believe. Don't ask me for just blindly follow just because you feel good, just because you were kind of saved from that accident. For example, you know, you heard people, you know, I was drowning and then somebody just pulled me out. I had gone to that, you know, useless life out there in the bars and, and having partying time in my life and God pulled me out. Let me ask you, why do you say it was Jesus who pulled you out? Why not Gautama Buddha or Krishna who pulled you out from there? Can you answer that? We just say Jesus, but we cannot answer this question. How, why do you say it was Jesus who pulled you out from there? Why not Krishna? I'm saying it was Krishna who pulled you out. Now what? So you see, you've got, to me at least, we have to have a reason. Once the reason is established, then your experience coupled with the reason becomes something that establishes you like on a rock. I still remember the time when I was in Africa and I was presenting this to 
a group of university students and uh, finally a medical student when he when we finished this he came up to me and shook my hands and said thank you you've settled me for life it's not that me i settled him it is the the in information you see if a rock must be established as a foundation it cannot be established on just experiences and feelings it has to be established on something known as facts and evidence so with those words we went to the five religions and made a comparison of them by asking para religious questions three questions were addressed to the writings and seven to the founders the flesh and blood founders the three questions to the writings were number 1 what type of writing is it is it a mythological writing is it a legendary writing is it a folk tale or is it a historical piece of writing number 2 does the writing throw out a challenge to test and see and number 3 what is the top feature of the writing you see these are not religious questions and then when it came to the founders themselves yeah it's not exactly thank you wow <laughs> yeah wow <laughs> when it came to the founders the first question what is the highest claim you make for yourself number 2 give me your message and your mission in a nutshell Number 3 how did your own life compare to your own teachings Number 4 what were the circumstances around your birth what was the length of ministry that you had and number 5 6 what were the circumstances around your death thank you Those were the nine questions we did and then we started the 10th one yesterday which we are going to complete what happened after you died and amazingly there's only one person who says i'm not dead yet i was but i woke up and we realize as rational thinkers that is an unbelievable story and i as an er doc witnessing death sometimes i never tell the family come back tomorrow for your person who you brought is gone so how does anyone expect anybody else to believe that a person rose up from the dead and yet the first question we asked was what kind of literature is the writing and the new testament is the best attested ancient piece of literature in the world it's historical all the features are historical the new testament does not have the features of a myth or a legend or a folk tale and therefore when you struggle when your faith struggles you cannot believe because it's such an unbelievable story and at the same time it's written in a in literature that is historical and not mythological you get stuck and so what we decided to do was examine it if it is so unbelievable then what's the corrected story and we saw there were two options number 1 he did not die he just fainted it's called a swoon theory and in the coolness of the tomb he was revived and yesterday we saw how improbable that was there are too many big questions the second option is he did die but he did not rise his body was stolen that's the theft theory and that's what we're going to look at right now so when we come to the theft theory does it fit in with the story how shall we change it so it makes more sense so we're going to look at the idea that the body was stolen number 1 here's the report of why that tomb was empty the soldiers said his disciples came at night and stole him away while we slept now if you read that sentence you'll know it is false the sentence itself is false for the simple reason that you cannot be awake and asleep at the same time 
If you were asleep, how do you know it's the disciples who came? And if you were awake, why did you let them steal? Because you were placed there for the exact thing and you had the swords and the spears and the shields. Not the disciples. So give me another story. The internal inconsistency of that sentence itself tells you it's false. Number two, the handkerchief was found folded together in a place by itself. Now what we are saying, these disciples came at night and stole. So they were thieves. Yes. Grave robbers. When did you ever hear of a thief folding clothes for you? The guards were just outside then. You want to fold clothes? It does not make sense. If a piece of, of cloth is nicely, neatly folded, that's not the scene of a theft. That's the scene of a person nonchalantly just taking a cool time. A theft scene is where everything is helter-skelter. You go looking for what you want, just pull out and throw things and grab the, maybe the, the, the jewel box or something and run. Number three is, the story says the clothes were left back there. If that is true, then we have to deduce that the disciples came and pulled out a naked body out of the tomb. Big questions come up as soon as you think of that. Number one, what were they planning to do? These were poor disciples, but they were loyal to the master. What were they planning to do with the body? The best had been done already. It was, the body was tenderly wrapped, perfumes, everything put over there, nicely buried in a tomb. What were they planning to do with a naked body rushing out? There is no logical explanation at all for that point. What were they planning to do? When everything had been done to the highest level of honor and respect already to the master. Number two, if you and I were thieves and we had planned to steal, does it make any sense going inside there and unwrapping that body? Why not just take the wrapped, nicely, you know, settled body and run? Why do you want to sit inside there and unwrap the body? No thief will start unwrapping if he doesn't have to. There is no reason for unwrapping. You cannot give a reason for a thief sitting there and trying to unwrap. And mind you, when you look at really the substances that were used for, with those strips of cloth, one of them was myrrh. If you put myrrh on a piece of cloth and leave it for a little while, it becomes sticky and hard. Can you imagine trying to unwrap a sticky, hard strip of cloth? That doesn't make any sense. It is not reasonable. The resurrection is not reasonable. That's why I'm having a hard time believing it. So don't give me another story that's also unbelievable and unreasonable. This is one. The third one on the, in this category is the fact that if we say the disciples took out a naked body, there's a psychological hurdle you simply cannot cross in the East. If you look at the pictures of Jesus on the cross, you see there's a loincloth around his middle, right? Okay, you can answer if I ask, okay? You do see a loincloth around his middle, right? Yeah. That is the artist's drawing because he wants to be decent. Those who were crucified were crucified stark naked. And that is, there's a reason. If you cut the few sentences by, who was the preacher last night? David Ashrick. Remember he said high crime and low social status. Those who were crucified were from the lower strata of society. And from the lower strata of society, this lower mean guy wanted to do a crime in society while we soldiers are around? Let's teach him a lesson. 
And one of the lessons they're going to teach this person from a low society is to strip him of every last vestige of dignity. So strip him completely naked and hang him up there for the world to see. Shame him to the uttermost. That is the end for this guy as far as social life is concerned. And that is what we see. So the Roman soldiers did that to Jesus. The Roman government then was aiming to shame this criminal to the uttermost by stripping him and hanging him up there stark naked. And you are telling me now that these loyal, loving, very close disciples of his took off all the strips of clothes and shamed him just like the Romans shamed him and then took the naked body out? That is a psychological hurdle you really cannot cross because no follower, no follower of a revered teacher or guru in the East will ever hint of exposing the nakedness of his master. That would be an unthinkable suggestion. So you have met a block here in that explanation that he was stolen out. If he stole out a naked body, sir, I'm from the East, I'm sorry, I cannot believe you. A disciple would never do that. Number three, four, what was the mechanism the disciples used to get inside the tomb while it was guarded by the soldiers? Have you tried to think of that? Did they dope all the soldiers? Gave them some sleeping pills? What, how did they get inside? There is no answer. How did they break the seal while the soldiers were there? Or were the soldiers just looking somewhere else into the jungle just for that period of time when the disciples came and didn't hear a sound when they moved the stone and kept on looking away from the tomb just long enough so the disciples could get in, unwrap the body, take it and run and they didn't even chase anybody at any time? Once again, it becomes an unreasonable explanation. In fact, there is no explanation. How did the disciples get inside? It's as improbable as how did Jesus get outside even though he may have woken up inside and hadn't died. There is no explanation of how of that could have happened. Number five, there is no written statement to say they had a motive to steal the body. We are putting on a motive 2,000 years later just to kind of dismiss the story that they may have had, had an idea that they would proclaim him as a risen savior and so they stole the body. Friends, look, when he was alive, they ran from him. Do you think they became suddenly all brave after he died? When a leader is alive, then you are strong. And when a leader is gone, you run. It was the Jews versus the Romans in those days. And here was your Jewish leader. At least with him there you can fight Rome. When he's gone, you are telling me they became bold now to fight Rome? And tell them that they're supposed to, you know, not bother about what they do to this dead body and to the seal that was there? It was, it was a crime against a nation to touch their seal. And that seal was touched and broken. If they really were conspirators and had decided that they would steal the body and then say he was alive, then why did they run from him in Garden of Gethsemane? There again is no explanation. Why did Peter deny his master when a maiden came to him and said, oh, you, you, I think you are with the man. He said, I don't know him at all. If really Peter had in mind and the disciples had in mind that they were going to steal the body until he was risen up, then I think he would have told this, this girl, he would have said, hey, hey, come here, I need to tell you something. You see this man being slapped and spat upon? Yeah, he looks all really ragged and tortured now, but just wait till Sunday morning. We've got a plan for you. Yep, that's what he would have said. Why deny a person? 
So when you take all these five into consideration, they had simply no motive for stealing the body. They had not anticipated his resurrection. In fact, when the story came to them that he was resurrected, they said, no, it couldn't be true. It's in the writings of the New Testament that they did not believe. So they had no motive. So when you take all these five that we just put on the screen here, the most reasonable conclusion is that his body was not stolen. Something else happened. The body died. The body was not stolen. Something else happened. So we go to the other side now. If these two alternatives, he did not die, the body was stolen, these two alternatives are not really, really reasonable. They don't stand to real scrutiny and examination. Then we go to the other side. If the story is true, do we have any evidences for it? If the story is true, what are the evidences? One, two, and three. The after effects, which is in the disciples and the fact that there is a Christian church today. Number one, the change in disciples. Perhaps the transformation of the disciples of Jesus is the greatest evidence of all for the, for the resurrection. Have you ever tried to give a reason for why they changed their minds? A little band of defeated cowards cowering in an upper room one day and a few days later transformed into a company that no persecution could silence. What's the change? They were willing to face arrest, imprisonment, beatings and horrible deaths and not one of them recanted of his belief that Christ had risen. Not one. Think of the psychological absurdity of attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication they were trying to foist upon the world. That simply would not make sense. Why would it not make sense? If you really imagined what may have taken place, you realize how improbable it was. You're telling me then these disciples, if they stole the body, then they knew where the body was buried. They knew it. They knew they had stolen it. They knew they had dumped it in some kind of a hole in the backyard somewhere in a bag. And then within 40 days, they marched to the middle of Jerusalem where the priests were all serving who had actually plotted the death of Jesus and, would, and were ready to knock off anybody else who talked in his name. These people walked to the middle of Jerusalem knowing that they had his body in one of their backyards and they extolled a bag of broken bones and rotting flesh and called it the prince of life and they said it with such conviction that 3,000 hard-nosed Jews dropped their lifelong cherished beliefs and decided to follow this man. Can you imagine telling a lie so strongly? Is it possible to be so strong about a lie that you will knock 3,000 people off their pedestal and say, drop your beliefs. This is the man to follow. And they say, yes, sir. You've given me some evidence. And so we believe from now on, we'll follow this man. A bag of rotting flesh and broken bones, is that what you would follow? No. There had to be something more than a dead body for a Jew. Because a Jew realized, and he knew when he was in Jerusalem, that this person had been condemned to death by the highest civil authority in the world, which was Rome. He was condemned to death by the highest religious authority that they knew of, and that was the Sanhedrin. And he was condemned to death by the highest authority that the Jewish mind ever conceived, and that was Jehovah God himself. He was condemned according to their own writings. Any person who was put on a cross to hang was under the curse of God. And so how come a Jew then shifted allegiance? The only answer has to be something bigger than the Sanhedrin, bigger than Rome, and bigger than a concept of God. And the only event that we know of written down anywhere is the fact that a person broke the bands of death and came up. That's why they were able to believe, despite what they had seen. The other thing is, 
give them some credibility, these disciples. Why do we say they're telling a lie? Were they telling a lie? If they were, then we'll have to call them liars. What basis do we have to do that? Really not much. Because most of their writings are very high in ethics, morals. In fact, the New Testament and the Sermon on the Mount and the rest of the writings by many, many scholars who are not even Christians will say this is one of the highest levels of ethics ever enunciated. And these people we are saying who enunciate and really wrote it down were lying at a basic level doesn't make sense again. Furthermore, let's decide what the picture might have been for these 12 to now make a a commitment to say that he had risen from the dead. Just imagine 12 of us. We'll form a little circle out here. And uh, I'm kind of the chief conspirator. We know that his body is in, the, in my backyard. And all of us know that, the 12 of us. And I say, okay, friends, now here's what we are supposed to do. We know he's buried at the back covered up. But we got to go and tell the world that he's not dead, but he's risen. And we're going to call him the Prince of Life. And we've got to tell everyone. And the 11 of them look at each other and say, um, uh, tell in Jerusalem also, yes, in Jerusalem, in front of the priests, yes, in front of the priests too. And then uh, what will they do to us? Well, nothing much. They'll slap you and spit on your face. That's all. Oh, slap and spit in the face. Okay, uh, what else? Well, the, then the next thing they'll do is they'll just whip you and beat you up. That's all. But you've got to keep telling it. And then when, they don't, when they're not satisfied with beating and whipping you up, they'll just throw you in jail. But don't bother. You go to jail, that's it. Just keep telling it, but. And then when they're not satisfied and they tell you to stop speaking in his name and ev stop ever saying that he rose up from the dead, you must continue to say it. And then when you continue to say it, they will look at your face and they will say, we will kill you. And you must say, go ahead and kill. Don't stop saying it. So what's in it for us, you know? I mean, yeah, we're a club of 12, but what's in it for me uh, to keep on telling it until I die? Nothing, just go and die. And then these 12, they're all hands in a circle around there and think about the suggestion. That dead body there, we're supposed to go and tell everyone that he's the prince of life and all that they will do is spit at us and smack us and, and put us in jail and torture us and finally they will kill us and there's nothing in it for us and then suddenly they look at each other and say yippee let's go and do it <laughs> really would you do that if you knew it was a complete fabrication a total hoax would you stand around and say yes sir let's go and tell that and just die it does not make any sense. That is why it wouldn't make any sense to say that a change was simply a hoax that they were trying to foist on the world. Number two is the presence of the Christian church. There were 11 disciples that started it out and they said Jesus had 12, so let's make it up into 12. And in choosing the 12, there were two criteria that they wanted to have. Therefore, all these men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John to that day when he was taken up from us, one of these must become witnesses, witness with us of his Sermon on the Mount, of his uh, walking on the sea. No. They must be a witness of his resurrection. There were two criteria. He must follow him all along. They must have been there right from the beginning. Seen everything about him. Seen him die. Seen him buried. And then 
they have to be witness of his resurrection. If you want to talk about his talk doctrines, go and join that other group. If you want to talk about his teachings, go and join the other group. If you want to join this group, then you have to be a witness of his resurrection. That is the basis of the Christian church. You could not be a part of this group until you were willing to say, I saw him alive, I saw him dead, and I saw him risen again. The Christianity stands or falls with the truth of the resurrection. Once you disprove it, you have disposed of Christianity. The resurrection gave significance to all that they did. With, without the resurrection, they had nothing to talk about. With the resurrection, they were invincible. The institution of the church then is a historical phenomenon and it's historical even today. So it's something that you and I can see. It's not an opinion. It is there as a real entity. It's explained only by Jesus' resurrection. Give me any other explanation for the starting of the Christian church. Because when, it, when, when he died, there was nobody around him. All had fled and gone. So why did the Christian church start? Compare that in your mind, possibly with say, Gautama Buddha or Muhammad. Suppose at the end of Muhammad's life, he was found to be a criminal and sentenced to death. Suppose Gautama Buddha was sentenced to hang at the end of his life. I don't think there would have been Islam or Buddhism today. The rank and file would have just left him and gone. Who's going to follow a criminal when we are dealing with something that's ethical and moral, like a religious tradition? Jesus' disciples fled and ran. Why should there be Christianity today? The only reason is something happened after he died. Eyewitnesses. So the after effects is a clear indication something dramatic and powerful happened the, in the disciples and the fact that there is a Christian church today. Number two is a eyewitness. The New Testament is absolutely unique in ancient literature because it has eyewitnesses in it. There is no other ancient literature that has been written down by eyewitnesses. Did you know that? Nobody ever saw Muhammad go to Mount Hira and get his revelations from Angel Gabriel. Nobody saw that. He said it himself. Nobody ever saw Gautama Buddha being enlightened under the ficus tree. He came out and he said, I was enlightened. Nobody saw that. Nobody was witness to that. The Hindu masters who wrote down the Hindu stories and the Hindu scriptures, none of them were in that story. They wrote down what somebody else said hundreds and thousands of years earlier. This is the only book. This is the only ancient scripture. This is the only ancient literature at all in which there is a person who says, I saw what I'm writing down. Those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. He who has seen has testified. That which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and our hands have handled. There is not another ancient writing in the world that has these words. And today, an eyewitness account that is written down is one of the strongest evidences that you can ever table in a court of law today. You can't simply just throw it out. The very kind of evidence which modern science and even psychologists are so insistent upon for determining the reality of any object under consideration is the kind of evidence that we have presented to us in the Gospels regarding the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, namely, the things that are seen with the human eye touched with the human hand and heard by the human ear. This is what we call empirical evidence. It's not a philosophy. It's an evidential based statement that is being made. The third thing 
on this side which says what evidence do we have for his resurrection is what we've called either a dying declaration or a deathbed confession. The psychology of a deathbed confession is that when you reach the end of your life, you've got nothing to lose. So all that you have hidden so far, well, might as well tell. Because you've got nothing to lose now. In fact, there is in the back of most people's minds, the, there is a coming cosmic judgment that you will have to be, that, you'll have, that will call for a reckoning. So even hardened criminals, when they are facing death, they are known to soften up and say, okay, I'll tell you the truth, because I've got nothing to lose. So if we have a deathbed confession, say of uh, something that happened long ago, we go to a person who's just dying and ask him, look, it happened 20 years ago. Do you remember who took the money from that room? And he is gasping his last few breaths and he says, okay, I'm dying. I'll tell you who took it. And you and your attorney stand right there next to him and hear his words. It was Mr. Brown. He walked into the room, pulled the, open the drawer, and in that white envelope was the money. He put it in his right pocket and he walked out. Ten minutes later, he's dead. You can take that written statement to a judge and a jury and they will have a hard time moving it off. It's a deathbed confession. Suppose at his confession he said, Mr. So-and-so was also there in the room. And you rush to Mr. So-and-so across town. He's also dying. And you say, who really took the money? Do you remember? He said, I'm, all these years I kept my mouth shut. I'm dying now. So let me just tell you the truth. It was Mr. Brown. He walked into the room, pulled out the drawer, the money was in a white envelope. He put it in his pocket and walked out. Let me tell you, if you have two or three deathbed confessions that say the same basic story, there is not a jury or a judge in the world that will overturn that. No, not deathbed confessions. The fact is, the resurrection story is founded on deathbed confessions. Peter was crucified upside down. James was stoned to death. Matthew was killed by the sword. James was crucified. James, the son of Zebedee, was killed by the sword. Thaddeus was shot through with arrows. Bartholomew was crucified. Andrew was crucified. Philip was crucified. Simon the Zealot was crucified. Thomas was killed with a spear. Paul was beheaded. Not one of them ever recanted. Everyone faced the, the same question. We'll beat you up. He rose. We'll spit on your face. He rose. I saw him before. I saw him die. I saw him after that. I touched him. I ate with him. And he called himself the Prince of Life. He rose up. We'll put you in jail. He rose up. We will kill you. Okay. I'm ready to die. Because this prince of life said, even when I die, that's not going to be the end of me. He's going to raise me up like he raised himself up. And so you can kill me, but I'm telling you, he rose up from the dead. That is the basis of my belief in him. And he will give to me eternal life because that is what he promised. And look, when you kill me, and later on when you feel bad that you have done it, I'll tell you something, you can go to him and he'll forgive you and he will give you also eternal life. Go ahead and kill. And every one of them went to his death. They were not killed in one swipe, you know, all 12 of them. No, they were killed one here and then two months later another one and a year later on another one and a year later on another one. Every one of them could have been told this, look, you want to go like that other guy? Then carry on telling about Jesus. You want to die like he? Tell me, if you were there, wouldn't you really consider that if it was a hoax? Wouldn't at that point at least you stop all your nonsense and tell him, okay, I'll tell you the truth. He's buried in that hole there. And then go home to your family, to your home. Why do you want to hang on to something that's going to kill you?
It makes no sense. And therefore, taking all the evidence together, it is not too much to say that there is no historic incident better or more variously supported than the resurrection of Christ. By all rules of philosophy, by all rules of a religious explanation, no, by all rules of evidence, his bodily resurrection from the grave can be adjusted the best proved fact of all ancient history. Did you know that? On that greatest point, we are not merely asked to have faith. In its favor as living truth, there exists such overwhelming evidence, positive and negative, factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. Look at who said these words, Lord Darling, Chief Justice of England. Now, don't you think a Chief Justice should know something about evidence? And a Chief Justice is saying that there is overwhelming evidence on that point. Thousands and tens of thousands of persons have gone through it piece by piece as carefully as every judge summing up a most important case. I have myself done it many times over not to persuade others but to satisfy myself and I know of no one fact in the history of mankind which is proved by better and fuller evidence of every sort to the understanding of a fair inquirer than that Christ died and rose again from the dead. Thomas Arnold was not somebody like me who would sell cucumbers and tomatoes on the roadside. He was author of this book. He was chairman of the Department of Modern History, Oxford University. So we have some credibility, at least social strata-wise. You have a chief justice saying the same thing and a chairman of the Department of Oxford University saying the same thing who have gone through it piece by piece and analyzed it to its extreme. When we set out, this is uh, Arnold Toynbee. He wrote a big study, actually, a study of history. One, two, three, four, so many volumes. In volume six, he studied anybody who called themselves a savior. Savior of the nation, savior of the community, savior of your family, savior of the world, whatever. If you called yourself a savior, he put that down and studied you. And, and he put it down in about 80 pages of his writings. And at the end, this is what he said. When we first set out on this quest of looking for the savior, we found ourselves moving in the midst of a mighty marching host. In the last stage of all, our motley host of would-be saviors, human and divine, has dwindled to a single company of none but gods. At the final ordeal of death, few, even of these would-be savior gods, have dared to put their title to the test by plunging into the icy river of death. And now as we stand and gaze with our eyes fixed upon the farther shore, meaning what happened after death, a single figure rises from the flood and straightway fills the whole horizon. There is the Savior. After studying all the Saviors, not a single person was able to do anything after death except this man. Here is the parting of ways that is irrevocable between this founder and every other founder who has ever formed any religious tradition on earth. This man said, I will rise up from the dead, and he did it. The bones of Abraham, Muhammad, Buddha, Confucius, Lao Tzu, Zoroaster are still here on earth. Jesus' tomb is empty. It is a factual, concrete, empirical proof that life has hope and meaning. Love is stronger than death. Goodness and power are ultimately allies and not enemies. Life and not death wins in the end. God the El Shaddai has touched us right here where we are and has defeated our last enemy. We are not cosmic orphans. Wandering about on a piece of granite, circling the sun aimlessly and endlessly. Humans are people of destiny. We are not orphans alone in this universe left to ourselves with no reference point whatsoever. So, the summary of all the 10 that we had done. The New Testament is the best documented ancient writing in the world. It is solidly historical and not mythological or legendary in character. 
Number two, the top feature of writing is beyond human capability, and the right that feature that we saw was cross-referencing, suggesting that there's one source that really wrote the whole book, and the source then has to live for at least 1,400 years, which is humanly impossible. Only the Bible's challenge is open and clear, and it fulfills its own challenge very impressively, and that is the challenge of predictive prophecy. It could say what will happen 100, 200, 500, 1,000 years hence, and it would come to pass. Jesus dared to make the highest claim of anyone. He claimed to be son of God. Jesus did not just bring the truth and the way and the life. He was the way, the truth, and the life. The only founder to claim identic, to be identical with his message. No other founder ever made that claim except him. Jesus is the only one in whom the theory of teaching was matched by actual practice in life and therefore the only one with the right to say, follow me. Amen. Jesus' ministry was the shortest and yet had the greatest impact. His is the, he was the only founder to be born illegitimate. And yet that raised the question of whether his father was human or from somewhere else. That's why they called him illegitimate. Nine, the only founder to die the shameful, violent death of a condemned criminal. And yet that raised big questions we saw yesterday. If he really was a criminal, how come he split civilized history into two, BC and AD? A common criminal doing that? Every time you write a check and write a date, you date it to the birth of this criminal. Therefore, number 10 is the deciding factor. The only one to go into the domain of death and the most feared enemy of humankind break those bands and come back as a conqueror. And therefore, my final conclusion on this point was, or these points, that these two, the, the man and the book, are totally unmatched. They have the highest credibility and therefore they provide to mankind what I had been looking in my search for 20 years, the only way. We have a few minutes now. What happened after this? I made a comparison. And in that comparison, obviously he stood up like a colossus. If Gautama Buddha and the others are over there, then Jesus is out here. And when, he, when you come to where he is, you can't even see the others. For the simple reason that the points of testable evidences that is given to us in facts and in the writings and in the utterances and in history and in archaeology will tell you that the credibility of this story is the highest that you can possibly hope to find in any literature on earth. He is the only way. But just because he comes out in front does not mean I'm going to follow him. You can go to a shop and the, and the salesperson can show you the best dress or the best suit out there, but that doesn't mean you're going to buy it. You may not still like it, even if it is the best. Are you with me? So he came out the best as far as I was concerned in my search. Now, you don't have to follow me and, tell, and agree with me. All you got to say is, if you were following from yesterday till now, all you got to say is, okay, I think this guy has got some reason to follow Let's give him that, 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 that due. And so we won't fight with him. We'll say, good, good, you got a good reason. And when you say that I've got a good reason to follow this man, let me throw it back to you. Friends, go and find your reason to believe. I've got mine and I've shared it with you. Don't have to take mine. Just find your reason to believe. Once we found the top, that doesn't mean I'm going to grab. I want to find out if that top, the best suit, is what I like or it appeals to me or the best dress. Maybe the shade of color is not what I like, but so I've got to see whether this best dress that the salesperson is showing me also is of the shade of color that I want. And so we go to the sequel to the search. After we find out this, is it true that when we scrutinize what we have, what we have got as the best, can it really grip us without doing any comparison as such? At least the focus is not on comparison. So there are a few things we'll go through quickly and then we'll come to the next session and we'll end over there. Number one, 
You remember I said there were some unique factors, or so-called unique factors. The religious religion said this is a unique factor, but it was not. These five religions said there were 12 things that were unique, but they were not unique because at least one other religion had it in them. A complete message, faith and trust, picture of a savior God, incarnation, that is God becoming a man, human, one supreme being, revelation and not man-made, beyond reason and logic, realization, experience are essential keys. The goal is incredibly fantastic. The blessings are present even in this life. It's a universal religion, not just for the people who call themselves by that name. And there's the presence of miracles. Now, just because I put these aside, when I was looking for the only way, it does not mean that they were unimportant. In fact, they were important to those religions. And that's why they placed them out in front and said, look, it's so unique, so you've got to follow this. I looked at that only for going through that again and saying, well, it was important to them, to the, all the five religions. So uh, one thing I could possibly do is why don't I make a generic religion that will appeal to all five religions and the 12 of these points will be the basis of forming my generic religion. Wouldn't that be reasonable? I don't want to fight with all the religions. I'll just make one generic religion which all of them agree to at least. They will say, okay, one of my points is there because I said it was unique and so important. The fact is, when you look at all these 12, there is a generic religion that is formed and only one religion answers to all 12, Christianity. Christianity has all 12. No other religion has all 12. So you want a generic religion? There it is. Summary of the conclusions. When you look at those 12, 10 conclusions, they fall into threes. The first three is to the literature, and I want you to see the internal consistency of these three points. Number one, it is the best attested ancient writing, okay? It is the best attested writing as historical. It is also has the best top feature, or at least a real top feature, which is humanly impossible. The top feature is that it was written by a source that lived for 1400 years at least. And number three, it is the only one to throw out a challenge to test itself and see. So here is the best attested ancient piece of literature which has an impressive top feature and is the only writing to throw out a challenge to test itself. You will not find this set with any other writing on earth. <coughs> number th four, five, and six about the man, the flesh and blood founder. Look at these three points and look at the consistency. He said he was the son of God. In other words, he came from another dimension. He came from the realm of the supernatural. If he came from the realm of the supernatural and was born here on earth of a woman, then he should have brought the message in himself. He doesn't have to go looking for the message. Are you with me? That's exactly what we find when he says, he did not just bring the way, the truth, and the life, he was. He said, I am. I am not telling you a message. I am bringing myself as the message to you. Because I have come from that realm, I brought the message in myself. And if he brought the message in himself, then I would expect him to have lived by that message completely from beginning to end, no mistake, Nothing to ask pardon for, no sin for confession. And that's exactly what we find. Jesus is the only one in whom the theory of teaching was matched by actual practice in life. Therefore, the only one to, with the right to say, follow me. Can you see the consistency of thought? He came from there, brought the message in himself, and lived by that message. No other founder can have that credibility to his name. That's on one side. You put him up on a pedestal, and then you go to the next three, you drag him down from the pedestal to the worst depths possible. His, he was the only founder who was born illegitimate. The only founder who had the least, the shortest ministry. Three and a half years. Everyone else had 23, 40, 45 years to do their work. He had only three and a half years. Booted out from his community. And the only founder to die the shameful, violent death of a condemned criminal. These three make for the worst picture of any founder. 
So on one side, he's the best. On the other side, he's the worst. Then we go to the last one that sets him finally apart from anyone else. He's the only one to go into the domain of death and come back as a conqueror over death. There is not a chance in the world, my friends. You show me anyone else, any other writing that has these characteristics, and if they beat these characteristics, I will promise you I will drop this and follow what you show. Just show it to me. Now we go on, yes, five minutes, let's just go on to the next one. About the man, look at what Dale Carnegie said. Jesus is not one of the group of the world's great. Talk of Alexander the Great and Charles the Great and Napoleon the Great, if you will. Jesus is a part, he is not the great, he is the only. Really? Is he the only? So you know what I'm looking at, I'm not comparing now. I want to see if he will grip my attention. Are there features in the man himself and his record which will grip me? His unique entrance into history, there are seven points we'll quickly go through. He came to be born of a virgin. That's absolutely unique. His mother conceived him while she was yet a virgin. He had no paternal father. The virgin conception, birth of Christ, is utterly unique in human history. It's not just the question of the birth. It's the question of the prediction that's what got my attention. Why would a person 600 years earlier ever say that somebody is going to be born of a virgin? How did he expect to be fulfilled? Would you write a physiologically ridiculous prediction like this? She's going to be pregnant and when she's pregnant she's still a virgin. Hey, hey, come on. <laughs> But the fact is, when you look through history, there's only one serious claimant to that, the life of Jesus. It was predicted, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. The virgin is pregnant. That, those are the actual words. It's not that the virgin will become pregnant. That anybody would, you know, that anybody else could fit inside there. But not this. The mother is still considered a virgin. His unique in sinless perfection. We saw that. 15 million minutes of life on this earth in the midst of a wicked, corrupt generation. Every thought, every deed, every purpose, every work, privately and publicly, from the time he opened his baby eyes until he expired on the cross, were all approved of God. Never once did our Lord have to confess any sin, for he had no sin. Christ's self-conscious purity is absolutely astonishing. He and he alone carried the spotless purity of childhood, untarnished through his youth and manhood. He remains the highest model of religion within the reach of our thoughts and no perfect piety is possible without his presence in the heart. Now I've quoted quite a few people, not just myself, who have looked at his life. Amazing life of sinless purity. Sinless perfection and perfect sinlessness is what we would expect of God incarnate. And this is what we do find in Jesus Christ. The hypothesis and facts concur. Miracles. Jesus' miracles were seen by eyewitnesses, like I mentioned before. They were seen and recorded in the same generation they were performed. There was no time to make it into a legend or a myth. It was written right there. They saw it, they wrote it down. Jesus himself performed the miracles unlike Muhammad and Moses. Take Moses, for instance. He had this rod, right? And we say, Moses' rod, he put it over the sea and the Red Sea kind of parted. But do you know what he himself said when he was putting his rod there? He told the children of Israel, watch and see the salvation that God performed, not me and my rod. This person said, I'll do it. And I'll forgive this man's sin. That's what he told about healing a guy. And the people said, who can forgive sins except God? So he turned around and told them, okay, here's the test, sir. Is it easier to say forgive your sins or easier to say stand up you who is a paralytic with wasted limbs, stand up here. But you know, I'm telling you, I'm going to give you an evidence that I can forgive sins. And here's my evidence. Stand up and walk. And this man stands up and walks. He performed the miracles himself. Everyone else said I've got it from somewhere else. All the power to do the miracle. 
Miracles are believed non-Christian religions because religion is already believed. But in the biblical religion, miracles are a part of the means of establishing the religion. This distinction is of immense importance. It was a miracle authenticating the religion at every point. Greatest words. After reading the doctrines of Plato, Socrates, Aristotle, we feel the specific difference between their words and Christ is the difference between an inquiry and a revelation. Heaven and earth shall pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Wow. What words to use? Heaven and earth will pass away, but my word shall not pass away. Never did the speaker seem to stand more utterly alone than when he uttered this majestic utterance. Never did it seem more improbable that it should be fulfilled. But as we look across the centuries, we see how it has been realized. They have never passed away. What human teacher ever dared to claim an eternity for his words? Nobody else has been able to do that. Influence? The ministry of Jesus lasted only three years, and yet in these three years it condensed the deepest meaning of history of religion. No great life after his close excited such universal and lasting interest. As the centuries pass, the evidence is accumulating that measured by his effect on history, Jesus is the most influential life ever lived on this planet. He didn't do only things to get attention. Whenever he met anyone, he probed to find out what they needed and addressed that need. If anyone thirsts, let him come. All who, are, who labor and are heavy laden, what is more basic than thirst and being tired? And he addressed that. He addressed the naked heart of man and touched the quick of the conscience. And the seventh one, he conquered death. Look, these seven points are what gripped me. Amazing life. I stand amazed. Sometimes when I look at that life, I am absolutely speechless. And that's my honest confession. This cannot be compared to anything or anybody else on earth. And so there's a chance that it's okay to follow this man. But we'll quit now. We're just about past time. 15 minutes later, we come back. We will look at the book. We looked at the man right now. We will look at the book and see if that is kind of unique and then we'll answer the question that we asked right in the beginning or rather yesterday. If he was the most innocent and the most perfectly lived life, why is it that he died the most horrible death? Did cosmic justice go bad? That's our last session. Come back in 15 minutes or less. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.